This morning's text comes from the book of Acts, the fourth chapter, beginning in the 13th verse through the 22nd verse. Acts 4, 13 to 22. Hear the word of the Lord. Now when they saw the boldness of Peter and John and perceived that they were uneducated common men, they wondered, and they recognized that they had been with Jesus. But seeing the man that had been healed standing beside them, they had nothing to say in opposition. But when they had commanded them to go aside out of the council, they conferred with one another, saying, What shall we do with these men? For that a notable sign has been performed through them is manifest to all the inhabitants of Jerusalem, and we cannot deny it. But in order that it may spread no further among the people, let us warn them to speak no more to anyone in this name. So they called them and charged them not to speak or teach at all in the name of Jesus. But Peter and John answered them, Whether it is right in the sight of God to listen to you rather than to God, you must judge. For we cannot but speak what we have seen and heard. And when they had further threatened them, they let them go, finding no way to punish them because of the people. For all men praised God for what had happened. For the man on whom this sign of healing was performed was more than 40 years old. Throughout all those 40 years, he had been lame. It says in chapter 3, verse 2, he was lame from birth. And now he was running and leaping and praising God through the temple. A great crowd had gathered when they saw him. And Peter, you remember, preached a great sermon with power. And 2,000 people received Christ and repented and joined the church. And then they were arrested at the beginning of chapter 4, thrown in jail overnight brought before the court the next day. And as we said last week, they went from the local to the global and they proclaimed with tremendous authority and boldness, there is salvation in no one else for it. There is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Now that brings us to where we are. Three things in today's text are amazingly relevant for our involvement with our secular world in America today, especially on this issue of abortion. Number one, note the kind of people Peter and John are, full of boldness. Number two, we will note the kind of response to this boldness that people give when their profit from error is threatened. And number three, note the kind of response that is given then when the apostles are Threatened. Let's take those three things one at a time and look at them first in the biblical perspective, the biblical context, and then move up to the 20th century and see how each of those three relates to our life today. First, back into the context where they were. The first point is that these men, Peter and John, were incredibly bold, incredibly uh, courageous and forthright and clear. Verse 13 It says, now when they saw the boldness of Peter and John and perceived that they were uneducated common men, they wondered. So they were stunned. 
they were amazed. And there were two reasons that when they came together, it didn't make sense. First, they saw their courage, their boldness. I mean, these guys were preaching and speaking before the authorities as though they were the authorities. And they looked at them and then they noticed they don't have any formal education. They don't have any formal training in rhetoric or speech. And they brought these two together, an amazing authoritative boldness and courage and clarity with a lack of formal education that the rabbis had. And they were baffled. They wondered. And then something entered their minds. This is just like Jesus. It said in John chapter 7, verse 15, the Jews marveled, same word is here, marveled at the teaching of Jesus, saying, how is it that this man has learning when he has never studied? They had the same response to Jesus that they had to Peter and John, and then it clicked, and they said it in the last part of the verse. They recognized that they had been with Jesus. Now, there's the key. These men were full of boldness and courage and clarity and forthrightness, not because they had been educated in a formal way with the rabbis, but because they had spent three years being infused with the truth and the spirit of Jesus Christ. That was why they were so courageous. That's point number one. Courage did not come from education, it came from Jesus and fellowship with him. Number two, the response that the elders, scribes, leaders have is this, verse 16, what shall we do with these men? For that a notable sign has been performed through them is manifest to all the inhabitants of Jerusalem, and we cannot deny it, but... In order that it may spread no further among the people, let us warn them to speak no more to anyone in this name. Now, that's amazing. That's stunning. You know why? Look at it. Can you explain the relationship between verse 16 and 17? What kind of logical relationship is that or illogical relationship? Verse 17 says, oh, look. A notable sign has been performed in the name of Jesus. It is a sign of love. It is a sign of benefit. And a man who was uh, lame for 40 years is now leaping and jumping. People are believing in Jesus. And we certainly can't deny it. There he is. Oh, conclusion. Let's shut these guys up. What kind of conclusion is that? That's a crazy conclusion. Mount three or four evidences that something should be seriously considered and then slap it shut. That's just craziness. It's like uh, saying, oh, look, there's big black clouds of smoke billowing up out of the stairway from the basement. Quick, shut the door and let's have dinner. Or, or look, this new drug People are getting cured of cancer all over America. Quick, gather it all up. Throw it in the river. Don't let anybody see it. That's the connection between verses 16 and 17. Real rational, real reasonable. Because there's something being threatened here by the truth. These people profit from not having Jesus believed on. 
they would really have to humble themselves and eat crow after crucifying him if he turned out to be real. Everything in their mind is being engaged to deny what they are seeing. And that's the second point. When we are threatened by the truth, we have a deaf ear and a blind eye to the evidence. Number three, what did Peter and John do in response to this threat? Verse 19, whether it is right in the sight of God to listen to you rather than to God, you must judge. For we cannot but speak what we have seen and heard. I love that response. You know why? It must have been absolutely exasperating. Uh, when did you stop beating your wife? That's the question. Do you see that here? What he's done to them? They can't answer this question. Tell us now, what should we do? Should we listen to God or to you? And if they say, well, listen to God. Ooh, no, don't listen to God. Listen to us. Ooh, no, that doesn't work. Well, or if they said, no, listen to us, not God. No, that's not right. What have you done? This is not, that's not a fair question. He has asked a question that draws them out of their ballpark right onto his ballpark. And there is no other answer. He won't play by their rules. You see it? It's a real, real sharp question. It drives them either to absolute frustration or to admit that they are not speaking for God anymore when they say, don't you talk about Jesus anymore. Now, where did Peter get the gusto to talk right to the leaders of Jerusalem who have the power to put him in jail and say, now you tell us. Do we listen to you or God? You or God? Where do you get that? Very simple. He'd been with Jesus. He knew that Jesus was alive. He'd seen him. Jesus was alive. Jesus was the Lord of the universe. Jesus had told them to pray and preach. And therefore, if somebody comes along and says, don't preach anymore, Peter knows it's not God. And he can ask them, all right, you tell me. God or you, they had been with Jesus. Now, the lesson here is don't feel like you have to play by the rules of the world when you converse with them. When the opportunity presents itself to stand up in public and speak what Jesus once spoken, you stand up and speak what Jesus once spoken even if the response will be, what are you trying to do? Dump your old religious assumptions on everybody else? Who do you think you are? We don't even buy your basic assumptions. Well, they didn't, of course, because Peter's assumption was God is speaking and you're speaking. We choose God, not you. You're not on God's side. That's his assumption. And, of course, they don't buy it. And he didn't care if they bought it. He spoke the truth and he said, we must speak what we have seen and heard. And that was the end of the conversation. They were out. Of course, they got arrested again and beaten the next time. Now, I want to apply these three things to us and our situation today. Take them one at a time. Go back to the beginning and state them in terms of lessons for us today. Lesson number one. In order to be bold and forthright and clear and courageous... 
in speaking what Jesus once spoken in public. You do not have to have advanced education or specialized training in rhetoric or logic. Do you get that now? Is the lesson clear? In order to speak with courage, boldness, clarity, and forthrightness, without any kind of fog or haze that covers ambiguity, you do not have to have an advanced education. You do not have to have specialized training. One of the great advantages that I have in having followed my educational career as far as it can go in my field and reading journals every month by people who write out of that advanced education is that I know beyond the shadow of a doubt that there is no positive correlation between advanced education and courageous clarity. Zero correlation. I'm tempted to say, and I'm going to qualify this in a minute, so I will go ahead and say it. There is a very high probability that if you follow education all the way through to the Ph.D., you will learn to speak in a way that very few can understand. There is very little correlation between advanced education and courage. Graduate schools don't make people courageous. And clarity. Graduate schools do not teach how to communicate with ordinary people with clarity. Now, here's the qualification, a very important parenthesis. I believe in education. If I had my life to live over again, I would live it exactly the way I lived it and go to school for 28 years. Well, 22, if you subtract the first six. And I believe that in this church, we should encourage our brightest young people to make a career of scholarship. Is that clear? Close parenthesis. Nevertheless. Nevertheless, let us get out of our minds the notion that in order to be courageous, in order to be clear and forthright, you've got to go to school another few years. You know where courage comes from? It comes from being with Jesus. It comes from knowing Jesus. So that you know, that you know, that you know, that you know that He's alive and that this is His will. And you know where clarity comes from? Forthright, unambiguous, no run around, no uh, fog clarity. It comes from goodness, good-heartedness that has nothing to hide. Doesn't need to create a fog of jargon in order to slip in some notion that people might not otherwise want to think about. And where do you become good like that with Jesus? Jesus was good like that. You remember what his enemy said to him? We know that you are true and care for no man. You know what they meant? Care for no man? You don't give a hoot what people think about what you say, do you? And Jesus kind of smiles and says, I care what my father says, but I don't care what you say. Truth is what matters. That's point number one. Namely, there is no positive correlation between advanced education and courageous clarity, which means, lest you haven't felt it yet, you have no excuse 
not to stand up in the public square and say, this is what Jesus says. This is what all people of every religion, race, color, ethnic background should do. I commend it to you for your serious consideration and be seated. And let them laugh and let them Twitter and let them beat you if they will. But there's no excuse for it does not require anything that is not available to any of you, namely time with Jesus. The second lesson is that when you do that, you will find increasingly today as well as then that people who benefit from wrongdoing and wrong thinking turn a deaf ear and a blind eye to mounting evidence for truth and right. In fact, every one of you knows this is not just a problem out there in the world. This is a problem right here. Because every one of us uses our brain to defend our heart. So if the heart wants just a little sex, the brain can manage that. I mean, it can come up with a good rationalization. Or if the stomach wants another helping, the brain can handle that, even though we know it's not healthy for us. The brain can work that out for us. It can clear the way. The brain is a remarkably wonderful uh, liar to the heart. It can defend anything the heart wants badly enough. And that's true. There is no such thing as complete objectivity anywhere in the world. Our minds run happily, willy-nilly along the leash of the heart, which is why hearts must be changed and why prayer is on the front burner for this year. We can talk till we're blue in the face to abortionists. I took one of the abortionists from the Midwest Center out to lunch twice. And I, I looked him in the face with just absolute flabbergasting at what he was willing to concede. I'll tell you more about that down there at one o'clock. But I knew that my words were like BBs against this man's boxcar blindness. Suppose the pictures of mutilated babies threatens your desire for abortion on demand, you know what your mind will do? I'll just tell you what what it does because I've talked to them. I've been talked to in jail. I've been talked to in abortion clinics. I've been talked to over lunch. I've been talked to at the university. And this is what the mind says when the pictures are threatening. Number one, they are emotionally manipulative and irrational. Number two, They are in bad taste. Number three, they are irrelevant in such a complex moral and philosophical issue. Those are the three responses I've gotten. You can't show the pictures. But, but, watch how the mind works here now. If showing dead sea otters or oil-slicked cranes or mutilated seals helps your cause, then you are Forcing people to come to terms with reality. You are bringing to light what is really happening. We wrote a really angry letter to the Star and Tribune about a year ago when they plastered on the front page a whole bunch of dead animals. And we wrote as a staff, every one of us signed it and said, in 20 years, 
historians are going to look back and try to document how in the world this land could countenance the killing of 26 million babies. And your front page is going to be one of the most ludicrous documentary evidences of the priorities of this nation that could ever have been. That you would not ever in a million years show a mutilated baby on the front of your paper, but you will show a dead seal. Oh, what the mind can do. Or take another example. This little book, survival resource book, Yes, Neon, from a counseling agency in the Twin Cities. This book was given to, I think, all the students down at South High in their sexual education course last term. And in this book, it says on page 54, medically, it is best to have an abortion after the sixth week and before the twelfth week of pregnancy. So uh, as, as before the baby gets just to be that size there, that's the twelfth week. Not before the sixth, though. It's complicated. Now, if I were to go to the abortion defenders who put this book together, and by the way, said things like on page 42, choose your sexual partner's carefully, all you teenagers at South High, choose all your partners carefully. That's the advice they got from this book. It's what our tax dollars are for to help educate our kids how to not get AIDS. Suppose I were to go up to these people and say, now, when you wrote uh, medically, it is best to have an abortion after the sixth week and before the twelfth week, did you mean medically best for the baby or for the mother? That's exactly the way Peter asked, should we listen to God or shall we listen to you? You see what that question does? Of course, what's going to happen is that they will turn the deaf ear and the blind eye because they won't look at the pictures. There's a man that can manage to keep themselves isolated from truth. Or here's another example. Steve Calvin, who will speak at the rally at one o'clock, who is one of our high risk OBGYN specialists here at Bethlehem, was doing his uh, tour out there in Arizona at a hospital. And he was heavily involved and doing wonderful things for the cause of life. And he wrote to the Arizona Daily Star. He sent me a copy of this. He was pointing out that increasingly in uh neonatal medicine, the baby is a patient in his or her own right alongside the mother. And so he wrote, there is inescapable schizophrenia in aborting a perfectly normal 22-week fetus while at the same hospital performing intrauterine surgery on its cousin. You need to come here, Steve. You need to hear a doctor on these issues, not just a pastor. The worst of all, however, is the blind eye and the deaf ear that is turned by Christians to the Bible. When the Bible speaks about God knitting together a being in the image of himself in the womb, when the Bible speaks about babes in the womb with the very same nouns that it speaks about babes in the arm, like John the Baptist, filled with the Holy Spirit inside his mother's womb, filled with the Holy Spirit inside his mother's womb, a blob filled with the Holy Spirit inside his mother's womb. And it warns repeatedly against the shedding of innocent blood or when it speaks of protecting the weakest and most vulnerable or when it calls on us 
to believe that God alone has the right to take life and to give it. So my second lesson is this. When doing wrong and thinking wrong bring benefit to you, and it might just be not having to get involved, that may be the benefit, then your mind will come in to defend the benefit of a heart by selectively observing and by rationalizing and by misinterpreting and by hiding yourself. We just need to be aware that that's the way the human mind, fallen, serving a fallen heart works. And when the heart becomes redeemed and gradually becomes sanctified, the mind then kicks in in order to speak for truth. And now the final lesson is that the disciples responded. Let me put it in the, uh, not a historical way, but a current way. Christians ought to respond by standing up in public, in PTA meetings, and business meetings, and civic gatherings, and public rallies, and school classes, and university uh, forums. Christians ought to stand up, ask for the floor, say what God once said, commend it for consideration, and be seated to pray. And let the chips fall where they will. Now, what I want to do at this point in the message is deliver you of a ball and chain around your neck. And by the number of heads that bobbed in the first service, I know it's there. Namely, we have around our neck a ball and chain that prevents us from doing that, that says this. Uh, Don't speak if you can't win. Don't talk if you think you may not get the last word. Don't speak if you think somebody might come back at you with something you can't answer right away. And so we never speak. Now listen, it is a lie from hell that Christians should only speak when they have all the answers. It's a lie, a satanic temptation that says, don't stand up because you may not be able to win. You are not called to win. You are called to witness. Now look at what Peter and John do here. They don't win. They lose. They're going to lose again when they get beaten a chapter later in chapter 5. It is irrelevant to them at that point whether they win or lose. They are called to do one thing. We cannot help but speak what we have seen and heard. Farewell. That's it. It's over. They're gone. There's no argument back and forth. There's no defense of the assumptions. And so I plead with you, undo that ball and chain from around your neck and stand up. Stand up at the city center. Stand up at the civic meeting. Stand up at the PTA. Stand up in class and say, you know, the Bible says, God's word says, That we should flee fornication and that it's wrong to have sexual relations before marriage. It does harm both to men and women and to children. It does harm to society because God is for us. And we do not think that this is something our society should defend. And we encourage you then to establish no rules, no laws, no provisions that make a place for fornication or multiple partnerships. 
Thank you for hearing me out. I commend it to you for your serious consideration and sit down. And that's all you have to do. And you will do it if you spend time with Jesus. If you spend time with Jesus, it will happen. The Bible says in Romans 1.32 and 2.15 that the law of God is written on everybody's heart. Do you realize what an advantage that gives us? The law is written on every heart. It's like this. The law is like a template with a fitting. The truth is the corresponding template that fits in there like that. And filling these gaps is corrosion of sin and error. Your job is to lay into people's heart the corresponding template. God's job is to clean out the gunk that keeps it from fitting. And someday he will, perhaps. I mean, who knows? Who knows what would happen if tens of thousands of evangelical believers, not thinking they had to control society, not thinking they had to be in offices, not thinking they had to make laws, but thinking they had to stand up in hundreds and thousands of places and say what God once said. Who knows what God might be pleased to do in reviving work to cleanse out the crud. And all of a sudden, one day in America, click. And you feel the same way about abortion that you do about slavery. This land was divided exactly the same way it is today over slavery 100 years ago, 150. How did it happen that we don't think that way anymore? There were people who just kept saying the truth, saying the truth, saying the truth, saying the truth. And God changed lives by the truth. It can happen. Your job is not to make it happen. Lay down that triumphalist notion. Your job is not to make it happen. Your job is not to get everybody into office. Your job is not to necessarily get people on the Supreme Court. Your job is to keep saying it, saying it, saying it. What has God once said in this class? What has God once said in this neighborhood? What has God once said in this conversation? What has God once said about that ordinance? That's all. Lay it down, brothers and sisters. Don't carry the burden of having to win. Jesus is responsible for winning. You are responsible for witnessing to what he once said. Close with an illustration. My son Benjamin now goes to public school, first time in eight years, and uh, Roosevelt High. And they have a, a parents' meeting, a parents' group that helps uh, raise money and does other good things for the student sports and so on. And Noelle has uh, decided this should be a priority in her life now. So she goes and she found out at the second meeting, I believe, that she went to that uh, one of the ways the parents thought it would be a great idea to raise money would be to install pull tab gambling machines in local bowling alleys. Raise money for kids. She came home to me and she said, do you know what they're going to do? I said, what? And she told me. Well, the next meeting rolled around. And in the same week, I believe, as this meeting, on the front page of the Tribune, you may remember the article, I think it was right over here on the left-hand single column, an article all about problems with youth addicted to gambling. Of course, we knew this was coming. Those of us who protested the lottery said, you're just going to wreck Minnesota, you're going to wreck America by pushing all this gambling. But it'll come, it'll ruin us sooner or later. Covetousness will destroy the soul. But here it is, youth, rising problem. How to solve it? Tax dollars. Boy, that makes sense, doesn't it? 
get the tax dollars from the lottery and then heal the people who are being destroyed by the lottery. She tore this out. We prayed and she went to the meeting. And I asked her yesterday, and I rehearsed with me how this went, so I'd get at least the gist of it here, I could tell you. When there was opportunity for input, she stood up and she said, there's already a problem in this state with young gamblers. Evidence, article, that's all. Um, How can we help? Oh, second point. Schools are to build character, not just communicate information. Assumption, maybe not shared. Irrelevant, truth. How can we help kids be responsible if we set an example as adults that gambling is a good way to raise money? Aren't we just encouraging something like something that promotes greed and lures the poor and discourages the path of rewarding labor? I don't think this is a good idea. I'd really discourage it. Thank you for listening. Sit down. They didn't change. They didn't change their mind. They thanked her. And afterwards, the people came up. I mean, three or four people came up, I think and uh, said they appreciated her perspective. Now listen, that's all you have to do. That's all Jesus is calling you to do. You don't have to win. Forget it, okay? I hope the one thing you take away from here is spending time with Jesus makes me a better person with a clearer vision of truth. It gives me courage. It doesn't make me a philosopher. It doesn't make me an academic genius. It doesn't make me full of uh, easily flowing words. But boy, it'll enable me to stand up at that meeting and say, look, I don't think this is the way we ought to go. And a lot of people in my church don't. And the Bible says this is wrong. So I discourage it. Thank you for listening and sit down. That's all. If a thousand people in this church did that in every circumstance where you find yourself, where the contrary of God's will is being spoken about, I think God would do something remarkable. If tens of thousands of evangelicals, without thinking they had to control, I'm worried about evangelicals who think they have to control, but I'm not worried about evangelicals who say, let's talk, let's stand up, let's say what God once said. And now I'm done, and I want you to take this little thing here again, and here's what I want you to do with it. I hope you will check off one of these things or more. I hope you'll sign your name and your phone numbers. And I want you to turn it in in one of two ways. When I'm done praying here in a minute, as you leave your pews, would you just lay it down on the end of the pew on the seat and we'll pick them up between the services? Or if you need to ask some questions or get more information, David, Michael and others will be at the pro-life booth right out here outside this door. But please don't go through the rest of this year apathetic and doing nothing to say what needs to be said and pray what needs to be prayed. I'll talk more about prayer down at the clinic in two hours. Let's pray. Almighty God and Heavenly Father, liberate us, liberate us, free us. Jesus, draw near to us now. I pray that every person in this room would have fellowship with you. It may be that some don't even know you, And that's their first step of fellowship is to believe in you and draw near and get forgiveness from you for sin and salvation for eternal life. And then to begin to enjoy the wonderful heart changing, mind changing fellowship of spending time in your presence and in your word. Do that for every person here, I pray. And so make us courageous and clear in our communication. And I just can't help but think that. There may be some in the room who 
carry a tremendous burden this week. Maybe you have a, an appointment coming that you need to really speak to. Or maybe you blew it last week and feel the need to repent. We're going to have people, a few teams at the front here, ready to pray with anybody about anything along this or any other lines. Don't, don't leave if God is whispering to you now. Uh, seek prayer. Get another person to carry this burden with you. And now the Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace both now and forever. Amen.